0: greetings in jesus name this morning i would like to take your minds back just a little bit kind of a sobering trip um a couple months ago here in this community um in the in the plain community a young husband took his own life you all remember that very well probably you probably know the family better than i do um And a couple days after that, I was driving between Harrisonburg and Whitmer's Crossroads, somewhere in that area. And it must have been right before the funeral, and I met um, buggy after buggy and people um, dressed in dark clothes or black suits um, going to that funeral. And so that was just a moving experience for me. Something stirred in my heart. And so this message kind of came out of that. Um, I know we all wish that those things never happened. Um, it brought back memories of cousin Reuben and his death uh, years ago and um so just just think just a little bit so um, to be a brother or a father of that man um, would have to be difficult because I think I would be or even a or even a church brother, I would just be really wrestling with, did I do enough? Was, were there signs of that coming that I missed? Did I try? Was I successful? Um, did I not care? Um, was there something I could have done? Like, that's where it would have really hit with me. Was there something I could have done that might have prevented such a tragedy? And then, um, so that that life, those lives and that event or history, but my thought this morning is, so is it possible that um, there are still people struggling? Is it possible that this could happen again? Um, Is it possible that I would ever get to a place that I would feel like death is better than life? Is that unusual? Is it it within reason? Not really. And so this message kind of starts out with that, but I want to move to, um, I'm borrowing a title of a little booklet uh, Mr. Bromfield write called Hope for Troubled Christians. I think I left it there on the bench. might get that. I might revert to this toward the end of the message. So let's go to, um, let's just pick up right after a Sunday school lesson and go to 1 Kings 19. One thing I want to establish uh, is that great men of the Bible, men that we respect and look up to, struggled with these things. Uh, You might think that it's... Not possible, but Elijah, the obedient prophet in our lesson that we um, so admire, um, this would be, let's see, next Sunday's lesson, and then going a little further, and I don't think our Sunday school book picks up on this exact passage, but in First Kings 19, after the Mount Carmel thing, so this is the same Elijah from our Sunday school lesson. and and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So there's a uh, one-day sentence. Death sentence. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. And said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He actually asked God to take his life. I mean, that sounds like suicidal tendencies in some ways. I'm glad that he didn't take his own life. but So what, what brought this on? What, what led up to this to get a godly man into such a, a poor state of mind? And so there's a couple elements, and you can just identify these in your mind. There was loneliness. Um, he was lonely. In 9 and 10 of the same chapter, God asked him, what are you doing here? As to, if to say, this is not the place for you. And in 10, he says, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Well, right there are two things, by his own Words He says, I am lonely and I am desperate. And so desperation. He felt like probably Jezebel and Ahab would find him and kill him. And he preferred death to life, it seems. And so people, even we, we can be lonely. We can even feel desperate. Think about another suicide in the Bible. It was Saul. Saul committed suicide because he saw he was surrounded and there was no way out. And um, so he took his own life. Um, I'd like to, while we're there in 1 Kings 19, just notice that his life work was not finished. I mean, I would take it that he was an older man at this point. um, And he had just won this huge victory. God had won this huge victory and used him And there were less, if not any, prophets of Baal left. And the people had verbally committed to serving the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so um, it was a great turning point toward the better. But his very life was at stake. And I think um, he felt very lonely. But notice in about verse 15 and 16, that his work wasn't finished. Like if he would if he really had passed away right then and there, there was unfinished work. And there were some big jobs. There were three appointments that he needed, anointings that he needed to carry out, including his successor, Elisha. And in verse 18, God told him, You're not alone. There's seven thousand that are not Baal worshipers, and they were probably widely separated, and maybe they hardly knew of or knew of each knew each other and yet God told him you're not alone and so loneliness can be um, a perception at times more than a reality and yet I think he was acknowledging the fact that he had ran from the north to the south and he was alone and afraid and so he thankfully um Moved on. This was not the end of the story for Elijah. He had work to do. And think about then Elijah's death. Um, You would hardly even say he died. He was just carried up in a chariot of fire. But there was a time, I'm just reminding us, there was a time in a great man's life where he really hardly knew how to move forward. Okay, let's go to Numbers 11. Numbers 11 um, builds on some previous events in Moses' life. You might remember that he was a very unwilling, at the start, leader. He did not want this job. He did not think he was capable. He did not think he was able. He almost told God no, but yet he did eventually agree. And what he feared did happen. Um, it was a difficult leadership. Um, you, As you review Moses' life, I think you'll probably think like I do, of how difficult his leadership was and how many times his people, uh, their heart was not perfect toward God. And so Numbers 11.11, 11, I think Moses is a great leader, and yet um, he, he says this, why, he says to God, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? Well, that sounds almost like the young man who broke his leg. Is God mad at me that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which I swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. Verse 14, I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. And 15, you can hardly believe, but he says, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Well, what led Moses to say such a thing? Such a rash statement to God. Um... Well, he was facing difficulty. He was facing a heavy responsibility. I don't think we understand um, what Moses was up against. (laughs) He had this huge group of people that were used to being slaves and told what to do and what not to do by their taskmasters, and all of a sudden they were free, and you know how freedom goes. Um, The last thing they wanted was to be told what to do and how to do it. And they needed a leader, and they needed a creed, and they needed—I um, mean, the Ten Commandments were basic morality code for them to live by. But they needed all this, and yet they, their freedom was—they um, were—they were. I'm going to just be honest; they were fairly difficult at times for him. And so Moses, because of his every responsibility, became. Um, discouraged it sounds to me like in verse 14 and 15 and just tells God I don't think it's going to work and so there's some answers to that um well maybe we should look at more of the problem well let's just let's just look at numbers uh let's look at God's response numbers eleven sixteen. 16 so the Lord said to Moses gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be elders of the people And then in verse 17, Then I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of this people with you. So God was saying, I will give you help. I think God actually acknowledged right there that there was a problem and that there was help needed. And so God said, get 70 more people to help you. And so delegation is maybe one answer to too much responsibility. And you have the same situation in Exodus seventeen three. Uh, perhaps this was before. Uh, chronologically the people were thirsty and in four, Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, "What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me." And then in eighteen three, eight, I'm sorry, eighteen thirteen, Exodus eighteen thirteen, Moses' father-in-law, the priest of Midian, comes to visit him and saw his workload. And he suggested, commanded, as a father-in-law, he commanded, well, he said, what you're doing is not sustainable, basically in verse, yeah, there in 13 to 16 or 18. And again, it was a situation where Moses was um, probably carrying more weight than one man can carry. And so, you don't know, you know. I guess maybe there's a little stigma around having a counselor. I don't think there should be. Basically what happened was Moses' counselor, his father-in-law, told him, you need to take some steps to get some help here. Well, that's, I don't know, somehow that sounds bad to us when we hear somebody say that, but it was a good thing for Moses, wasn't it, that he was able to delegate even more? And so instead of doing all of the work, He did some of the work, and he oversaw some other parts of the work. And so what he felt was probably a normal human reaction of one man up against a huge job, and God provided him some relief. And aren't we glad that Moses, that God didn't do what Moses asked? Who would have led the people all the way to the promised land had not Moses carried on with God's help? I'd like to also think about David a bit in Psalm 42. I had not really picked up on this until recently reading through the Psalms again. Psalm 42, verse 5 is where we'll go first. But you know that that David, as a great man of God, sinned. And in that time between the sin and the repentance, I don't know what all happened in there. But I know that David's heart must have been burdened. He was bearing the weight of guilt. And I don't necessarily see him um, in, these, in this verse um, exceedingly desperate, but I do did especially notice, notice Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And in verse 11, he says the same thing exactly. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And in 43.5, he says exactly the same thing again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? I conclude that if he were answering his council meeting card, do you have peace with God, his answer was No. I don't. At least that is what I'm taking from the threefold repetition of his admission that his heart was not at peace. His soul was, he says, down. Well, we know. I don't know if these two things tie together, but we know there was a time in David's life where he was bearing this weight of guilt, and I think There's another thing that can cause a great man of God to um, consider whether life is worth living. I'm glad that's not the end of the story for David. If you move forward to Psalm 51, the heading there tells everything. And it says this, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgression. I have sinned against you. And maybe verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. And so there's a great turning point in David's life. And if you read the Psalms after that, you you sense a different man entirely. A man that is at peace. A man that wants to live and do right. I'm thinking about one more character um, that was living with the weight of guilt. Uh, This is in Matthew 27, 3. Remember Judas Iscariot and how he agreed to take money to betray Jesus? And I don't know what all was happening in his mind. Did he think Jesus would just walk away as he always did? and Judas would be rich, and Jesus would be free. Well, that was not how it worked out. And in 27.3, it seems like reality sunk in when he said, when Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the piece of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And so there's the weight of a guilty conscience and a poor response. Honestly, I think we have to evaluate if we're at that position of having failed miserably, would we rather go down in history? Would we rather our children know us as a Judas or a David? We have to get to that point. And I think we know the answer. One more person that we should consider is Paul. And this is in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. I don't know what man we could look at that that was more exemplary of a courageous evangelist. And yet in 2 Corinthians he gives some very uh, frank, assessment of how things were at times. It's kind of like reading someone's autobiography. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Paul says, Paul of all people, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. yes. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. While we're there, we'll just go to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, where he picks up the same thought and fleshes it out a little bit. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so I think Paul had a a steady confidence in God, but in the first passage we read, I think he, he honestly admitted They thought they were done. He said, we despaired even of life. Like, not that he was ready to take his own life, but he just didn't think... um, There were times, it sounds to me like, that he thought it was over. And you can just think back. Wasn't he stoned and drove out of the city for dead? Um, I assume he was very near death. And yet he carried on and... Just reading you can you know, we read all of Paul's writings and all the great things that he wrote, but think about the man Paul and all the difficulty and all the persecution and all the distress and all the trouble and in especially Second Timothy, when he's in prison and near the end of the life, you hear some real humanity <clears throat> coming out that, that it was it it tended to wear him down. And he was doing the Lord's will, and he was doing what was right, and he was simply suffering for Christ. I'm glad that Paul didn't give up; we would have missed a bunch. Um, just two other things here: do Do you ever feel misunderstood? Let's go to Psalms fifty-six, five. I don't mean a little misunderstood, as as if you said one thing and somebody gave you something else, but a huge misunderstanding where it feels like no matter what you say it's not that way. In Psalm 56.5 David said "It's an honest man all day they twist my words all their thoughts are against me for evil they gather together they hide they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wonderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? So David is crying about misunderstandings. And it seems intentional misunderstandings. And yet, and yet he... Moved forward. And don't we identify with that? That sometimes there are deep misunderstandings. Have you ever wondered if God is hearing? Can you find Habakkuk in your Bible? Habakkuk 1 1. He's a, a minor prophet. Not that he was a minor man, but that his prophecy is smaller than some. It's very near the end of the Old Testament. If you found Nahum, it's right after, or Micah, you're close. Habakkuk says this, and the question is, do we ever struggle with, does God hear? Is God really hearing me? Habakkuk says, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear, even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity? and calls me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me there is strife and contention arises therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous therefore perverse judgment proceeds do you hear a prophet crying out in his heart and feeling like god was not near god was not close well that's common isn't it? That there are times like that. And yet we read Habakkuk and he did God's work faithfully. I would like to now switch gears a little bit. We've spent plenty of time identifying some of the problems and some of the things that we we face as people. Um, I would like to give you four, four solid reasons, hopefully short enough that If we're in any of the distresses we've just talked about, we can remember. And the first one is that God is faithful. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He may seem far away. It may seem like the dark ages. We might not see his hand at work. Our faith may be weak. We may be struggling, and yet... Over and above all of that, God is always faithful. He is faithful to Elijah. He is faithful to Moses, to David, and to us. Yes, to every one of us. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful. I guess if we only remember three words today, we should get those. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful, and I think we need a strong faith to see that faithfulness of our God. It may be hidden, it may be delayed, but it is never not there. And so behind, over and above our difficulties is a faithful God. God also told Jeremiah, or yes, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. It might not look like it. There are things that are too difficult for us to understand like suicide and cancer and people throwing away all that they've ever learned or been taught. And yet God is still there with thoughts of peace to his children. He is always there. Secondly, I'd like us to consider a great cloud of witness. This is Hebrews 12, verse 1. So in Hebrews 11, we have all the people that were faithful. They did the right thing, even in the face of difficulty. They did not all succeed marvelously. Down in the end, there were people that were murdered, persecuted, tormented, and yet they also are listed in the chapter of faith. But Hebrews 12, 1 starts out this way, Wherefore... We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. So I don't know who you think this cloud of witnesses is. Is it saints in heaven looking down, perhaps? Is it the angels who seem to have some insight into what happens on earth, maybe, although it's not really stated here. I'm not sure, but I know this for a fact. We are surrounded by people right here, right now, today, and our successes and our failures affect them deeply. And so, this great cloud of witnesses I'm suggesting is just our families and our brothers and sisters our ministry, the people we know and work with, our neighbors, and are they not all keenly, keenly observing and wanting us to do right? I mean, I don't think that we always consider this so much, but how our successes, failures, victories, and defeats, how they affect everybody in our church, everybody we relate to, and how sad and how deeply disturbed we are when we hear of a failure and how happy, glad, joyful we are to know that someone, maybe they were struggling, but they've come through it. They've, they've faced something very difficult, and with God's help, they, they succeeded. Doesn't that give you courage to move forward? And to know that, that there are many people praying for our own spiritual well-being. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That's a huge reason not to give up. We shouldn't. We can't. It would, it would be way too hard on way too many people. Thirdly, let's remember Jesus. This is in Hebrews twelve two. It's just the next couple of verses there. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So think about Jesus as the ultimate misunderstood, And yet, perfect person. And none of us approach perfection like that. But I'm just saying, as far as injustice goes, he suffered more than we ever have. And maybe as far as physical suffering, he suffered more than anyone has either. And yet, he was doing God's will. And God was with him. And he carried through. He was faithful. He did his job. He admitted in Gethsemane that it was difficult, that his flesh was not willing um his request almost sounds like Moses's in a tiny little way where he says I will if you need me to and he did. And so if we're ever weighing whether it's worth it we need to remember Jesus. If nothing else we should remember that he died for us. We shouldn't try to do anything over or above that, or beyond that. He died for us. We have redemption through his blood. Fourthly, we need to consider that our eternal destiny is at stake. Let's go to Galatians 6, verse 8. I think we all know this, but Heaven is for the faithful. Heaven is for the righteous. Heaven is for those who continue as long as God gives them life and breath. In Galatians 6, verse 8, we have this, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not or do not lose heart or give up. And so the reward is at the end. And if we cut the race short, God forbid, we have taken a very poor path. And our destiny is at stake there. And if we're faithful and we give it to God and our protection to God, our work to God, our lives to God, our end to God, even, we can reap everlasting life. So, four things there, four reasons. God is faithful. There's a cloud of witnesses, everyone around us. We have Jesus, and we need to consider our eternal destiny. I do not think that a book is the answer to every problem, but I will say that this book has been helpful. Comfort for Troubled Christians, an old book by Brumfield. Um, Feel free to... Look at one, purchase one, just in case you ever need it. But he, he, he just has some really, it's a small book, very basic encouragement for the discouraged. And he's just, I'll just read you a little, a little paragraph here. He says, are you sick and discouraged, weak and weary, facing trials and troubles that seem more than you can bear? Then remember these five glorious facts. Jesus cares. You are precious to him. Jesus cleanses. Jesus controls. He comforts and he knows. Be assured he knows when the work is done. I just found this very helpful and can recommend it. There's another book out there. Uh, Simon Schrock wrote a book, Don't Throw in the Towel. It's kind of geared toward ministers who are Um, worn out of serving and he admits that um, he struggled with some discouragement I would like to close with a song this is rather a modern song and yet um, the thought is so accurate Dottie Rambo writes too many miles behind me too many trials are through and too many tears help me to remember There's too much to gain to lose. I've crossed the hot, burning desert, struggled the right road to choose, but somewhere up ahead I see cool, clear water, and defeat is one word I won't use. Too many sunsets lie behind the mountain. Too many rivers my feet have walked through too many treasures are waiting over yonder. There's too much to gain to lose. Let's join with Paul and his commitment. He said, I press toward the mark.